That's why I do this work every single day. It's on the shoulders of these giants who made it possible for me to actually not just run for office, but to be alive. I seroconverted when I was 23 years old. I lost my health insurance a week later. Mm. I was devastated and scared and full of shame, but there were life-saving drugs that had been available for, at that point, eight years. Not that long. No, not and at that, all. And that's why I'm alive today, literally. Mm. And so I am just extraordinarily grateful um, to do this work. You just heard a little bit of my interview with Speaker of the New York City Council, Corey Johnson. This interview was a lot of fun to record. We covered hot-button issues like the MTA, affordable housing, income inequality, and climate change, as well as more personal issues like his journey from growing up in small-town Massachusetts to finding himself to moving to New York City and running for a community board at a very young age. So. If you enjoyed this conversation, please find the Millennial Politics Podcast in iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, rate us five stars. It helps people find us. And then, of course, follow us on social media at Millen Politics and subscribe to our Patreon, where we will have a very special, informal, behind-the-scenes interview with Corey Johnson right after this. It's for patrons only, so please do subscribe. And, of course, without further ado, take a listen to my interview with Speaker of the New York City Council, Corey Johnson. Hey everyone, welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin, and today we're joined by uh, the New York City Council Speaker, Corey Johnson. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. We are very excited to have you, and I'm excited to talk about some local issues here. Um, I want to start off by covering some of the bigger, more pressing issues for New Yorkers. Um, The big one is probably the MTA. I ride the subway every day. I take a bus every day. Um, The New York City subways are in a state of disrepair. Can you talk a little bit about your plan, how you see the subways. I know you've kind of have this uh, out-of-the-box thinking approach to it. I'd love to hear a, a little bit more about that. Sure. I mean, for folks who live in New York City and uh, take the subway or a bus every single day, you know that our subway system is really at a breaking point. It's been that way for a few years now. That's because of years of disinvestment, both at the state level and the federal level, but also because of the way the system is set up. So uh, if you live in New York or you don't live in New York, you should know that the MTA, the Metropolitan Transit Authority, runs our city subways and buses. And so the mayor of the city of New York, the city council, the municipal legislature in New York City, we have no say, no operational control, no budgetary authority, no oversight over the MTA, which moves around more than 6 million New Yorkers every single day. 
Mass transit is the lifeblood of New York City. It's why our economy has expanded so much. It's why we've seen the largest economic expansion since the Great Depression almost 100 years ago. It's because of our transit system. And we need to be a 22nd century city doing what cities across Asia and Europe and actually other American cities have done over the past decade and a half. And we're falling short on that. And so I released a plan a little more than a month ago calling for municipal control of the subway and bus system, uh, taking the subways and buses out of the MTA, giving it to the city of New York to run and coming up with a financing plan, a local tax authority plan, a governance structure, an operational plan of how that could happen. In the past, other city leaders have called for municipal control, but it's really just sort of been a talking point. I released a 104 page report detailing how to get it done, why it's important for the local economy, how to hold the commuter railroads, Metro North and Long Island Railroad uh, totally fine financially if you do this. And so I'm excited about it. It got a lot of good play. People were uh, excited to hear a real plan on it. Ultimately, the state legislature and the governor would need to agree. I'm not sure I see that happening in the short term. But when Michael Bloomberg ran for mayor in 2001, his big idea was mayoral control of the school system. People said it's never going to happen. You have 32 school districts. They're local fiefdoms. You're never going to break that up. And he did it. And Mayor de Blasio, when he ran for mayor in 2013, said universal pre-K. And people laughed at him and said it's not going to happen. Albany's not going to give you the money. It's not possible. And he got it done. New York deserves big, bold, creative, forward-thinking, substantive, granular, specific ideas so that we remain the greatest city in the world. And that is what municipal control is about of our mass transit system. And that's why I gave the speech and released the report a little more than a month ago. And what's so fascinating about the way that the MTA is not only structured but functions, um, the oversight is really delegated to a board and they don't use the subways, they don't use the buses. So we the people who ride the subways, who ride the buses, we have no influence, we have no oversight, like you said, we have no control. So I'm really excited about this plan. Um, I think some of the critics will say that it will add um, a significant amount of responsibility to the city in terms of uh, monetary responsibility and the budget. So what is your response to the critics who say, look, like we just can't afford as a city to do it. It has to be done at a state level. Well, it's complicated, and I'm not sure we have the time today to go into all of the different so keep it short. Giving funding <laughs> proposals, the tax authority proposals that I laid out. But yeah. one of the most basic ways to do it is actually you don't have to raise taxes on people to get it done. One of the ideas is the current sales tax that New Yorkers pay uh, to the state and to the city, um, currently a portion of that goes to the MTA, a very small amount. If you dedicated a, a greater share of existing sales tax revenue without increasing sales taxes to the MTA, and then you gave control of the MTA over to the city, that could fully finance the MTA. Wow. And you could do that with the new revenue that's going to come in from congestion pricing, yep. the internet sales tax money that the state legislature just dedicated towards the MTA, the mansion tax money that's going to be dedicated to the MTA. And if you did a small portion of the existing sales tax money, you could actually uh, fully fund the MTA in a significant way. Uh, but there's complications with the, the debt that's owed, the bonds that are owed, and so it would need to be be basically an amicable divorce sure. uh, in some way, and you would need cooperation uh, from the state government to get it done. Again, I don't think it's going to happen in the short term, but I think that we need big, bold ideas, 
and you need to think outside the box and yep. look at what other cities are doing across the world. But there is a way to get it done where it would not be financially harmful to the city's bottom line and the city's annual budget. And I heard you slip in there the idea that we need to have a transportation system for the 22nd century. So you're thinking pretty far out. You're not thinking next year, next election cycle. You're thinking what's going to be good for the city in the next 50, 60, 100 years. Yeah, and we have to think that way because uh, our city's growing. Yeah. It's grown a lot. Um, we'll see what happens with the census numbers uh, next year. But we have to plan not just for transportation, but transportation actually feeds into uh, an environmental justice agenda, a climate sure. change agenda, housing. A housing agenda, all of these things, resiliency, because we're a waterfront city, yeah. we're a coastal city. So you have to plan in big ways. And so part of the speech that I gave, which about municipal control, also talked about having a master plan as it relates to transportation in New York City, looking at greater pedestrianization, breaking the car culture, yeah. making it safe for cyclists, moving away towards cars and buses, cars, sorry, and trucks. We want more buses, but we want electric buses, yep. not diesel buses. Um, and all of this is incredibly important for the future health of our city and for smart growth in our city. And other cities have done it in a really thoughtful way. Uh, cities across Europe have done it. But even if you look at Chicago and Los Angeles, Los Angeles just approved a huge bond measure to expand their subway system. Most people don't think about subways and think about LA, but they're expanding it in a big way. Rahm Emanuel had a tough time as a two-term mayor <laughs> in Chicago with crime and with other issues. But one of the things he was able to do was actually get greater authority and control over the L, over the subways, the above uh, ground rail there, and, and make and improve it. So other cities are doing this. It's time for New York to do it. I have great admiration and I think Andy Byford's doing a good job. But imagine what he could do if he was broken free from the shackles of MTA bureaucracy and broken free from being under the thumb of Albany and could do this on his own. And that's what I want us to talk about moving forward. This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. I agree. And I think what's so interesting about it is, like you said, all of these issues are interconnected. They're interrelated. Um, you spoke a little bit about climate justice, environmental security. Um, New York City, I, I believe the stat, correct me if I'm wrong, is something like 70% of all carbon emissions in New York City comes from uh, buildings. Um, yes. And, and, and you and the city council recently passed landmark legislation on climate change, protecting climate change, or, or protecting from climate change, and really advancing what is a Green New Deal for the city of New York. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of historic legislation? I believe New York was the first city in the nation to do something like that. Yeah, you know, we hear, you know, in New York, across the country, and was listening, I'm sure, if someone's listening to this 
uh, wonderful podcast, they've heard the Green New Deal language. And what does that mean? And is there a chance to get it passed in Congress right now? No, because the Republicans control the Senate, and Mitch McConnell has said he won't do this. And can we get this done at the statewide level? In most states, it hasn't been possible. And even progressive cities across the country haven't been able to move forward a bill that really addresses climate change in a significant way. So the council has spent the last four plus years on a bill we just passed two weeks ago called the Climate Mobilization Act. And it goes to what you just said, which is the 70% of the carbon emissions in New York City are emitted by large buildings over 25,000 square feet in size. Hmm. So this bill uh, requires retrofits of buildings, whether you are a co-op or a condo or a government building or a hospital or a, a NYCHA building, a New York City Public Housing Authority building, any of these buildings would have to comply by certain new energy standards and you have to retrofit the buildings to meet those energy standards. There's a big potential cost to it, but you really can't put a cost on the future of our planet. We are on the precipice of a climate catastrophe yeah. and the United Nations said last October that we had 12, 12 years. years. 12 years. So now we're actually like at 11 and a half years. Yeah. Time keeps going on, yes. you know. So we have to get it done. And New York is the first city in the world to do something like this. So we would see a uh, we would see a forty percent reduction in emissions by twenty thirty in the next ten years, and an eighty percent reduction by twenty fifty, which is what the UN and other panels have said we need to strive for. And if New York can do it with a complicated city, with a complicated building stock, uh, in five boroughs, with all sorts of different buildings, old buildings, historic buildings, inefficient buildings. If we can do it, other cities can do it. And hopefully we're leading the way and blazing the trail for other cities. Yep. And I want to connect um, the idea of retrofitting old buildings with building potentially new affordable housing. We have a real affordability crisis in this city. And I'd love to hear what you think, because like you said, they're all related. So, you know, a, a young child who is homeless is not going to perform in school and that will have downstream effects. Mm-hmm. So talk to us a little bit about what your plan is to rectify this growing affordability crisis in New York. Well, it's the biggest issue that faces the city of New York is the affordability crisis. And the affordability crisis branches out in so many different ways. We have a, a housing crisis where we don't have enough affordable housing. We have a homelessness crisis where tonight in the shelter system, over 60,000 New Yorkers will sleep in a New York City shelter. How many of those are children? 23,000 of whom are children wow. under the age of 16 years old. And those numbers are massive. They're like, hard to even comprehend. And that doesn't even include, these are the sort of the invisible homeless. And what I yeah. mean by that, these are not the people you see on the streets of New York. These are not the people you see on the subways. Most of these people, almost a majority of the adults in the shelter system are working a full-time job, working mm. 40 hours a week and can't afford to have a roof over their heads for themselves and for their families and for their children. The numbers get even more dire and upsetting when you start to dig down. So in the previous school year, not the current school year that we're in, we don't know yet, we're getting towards the end of the school year, but in the previous academic year, we have 1.1 million school children in New York City. At one point during the previous school year, 10% of students, 110,000 students, were deemed homeless at one point during the school year. That number is shocking, shocking. There are certain schools in the city right now where 40 to 50% of the student body 
are homeless and living in homeless shelters. And so this is what's happening in our city. You have an affordability crisis where almost 40% of New Yorkers are living at or below the poverty line. You're building luxury towers all over the city of New York. Neighborhoods are gentrifying. Communities are getting displaced. The construction hasn't stopped. It, it hasn't keeps stopped. on going. But, and so there's a multiple, there's I think a multi-pronged strategy we need to do. Number one is you need to preserve the existing affordable housing that we have, which is why I testified today on strengthening the rent laws in Albany this legislative session, uh, almost two-thirds of New Yorkers are renters, and you have to protect those people. It's a cost-effective way to do it because you don't have to do new construction and land costs, so that's the most important thing. But when you are using city land or requiring developers to build affordable housing, the real question that everyone asks is, affordable to who? Right. And you need deeper affordability. You need affordability for lower income New Yorkers who are really struggling to get by, who are making $30,000, $25,000, $40,000, $45,000 a year, and who can't afford to be in the city and are ending up in a bad place. So the affordability. They can't afford $1,000 a month rent, no. $1,200 a month rent. And that's un un the unfortunate reality here in the city. And we have a huge budget. So it's not like money is scarce. So what budget, is our budget? So our budget's growing next month. The budget we're about to vote on is about nine. $92 billion. Wow. So it's the largest budget in the United States outside of the federal government, New York State, Texas, and California. Mm. So our budget just surpassed the state of Florida, wow. New York City's budget. So the mayor is spending uh, tens of billions of dollars on new construction, yeah. and also we put uh, money into subsidizing buildings mm. for people who are formerly homeless or people right. who have a substance misuse issue, uh, people that are domestic violence survivors. We do this already. We need to deepen that affordability for people that are really struggling to get by. You need to build reliable mass transit because uh, the subway is where New York happens and we don't have variable pricing. Everyone pays the same amount. We need to make sure that schools are good in all communities and you have to make sure that New York City remains a place where not just someone with a six-figure salary can yeah. survive, but everyone can afford to live here and thrive here and be an integral part of the fabric of New York City, and we're losing that. I'll end with this on this question. I moved to New York City when I was 19 years old. I knew one person. I had two bags. It was in May of 2001, and somehow uh, I was able to cobble it together and sort of make it here in the city. I still live in Chelsea, the neighborhood that I moved to back then, which has grown way more unaffordable than it was 19 years ago. And um, it's becoming harder for a 19-year-old that doesn't come from a wealthy family to come to New York City and to live out the dreams and aspirations they have when connecting to the greatest city in the world. And that's what we're up against. And I'm glad that you brought up your, your personal story here because I did want to switch gears and talk a little bit about that. Um, you have a powerful story. You have a powerful narrative around your background. Like you said, you moved here when you were 19, didn't really know anyone, not from a wealthy family. Um, I believe you started serving on your community board mm -hmm. and then um, you might have been the youngest community board member and then ran for city council. Can you talk a little bit about your path and, and kind of what makes you who you are? Sure. I mean, um, I feel like the most blessed person because uh, I mean this not in a, hopefully this doesn't sound weird, I never expected any of this. I didn't think I would be sitting in City Hall talking to you 
being speaker of the New York City Council. I grew up in public housing. My mom was my lunch lady and cleaned houses on the weekends. My dad was a Pepsi truck driver. We lived in one of 12 units of public housing in the town that I grew up in. I came out at 16 years old in a small town in Massachusetts about six months after Matthew Shepard had been murdered in Wyoming. Mm. Um, and I was just elected captain of my high school football team. I was incredibly blessed and fortunate and lucky. Was that, that well received? Or well, my was family that... was amazing and unconditionally loving. Um, and my town and my team were pretty good as well. But I didn't know it was going to be that way. And that moment of truth, that moment of saying, uh, this is who I am and I'm not going to be depressed and despondent and suicidal anymore mm. because I'm a young closeted gay man stepping through that fear and stepping through that door of saying this is who I am is what opened up my life for the path I'm on now. Mm. It opened up my life to LGBT activism. It opened up my life to being interested and not to sound hokey or corny, but to really try to be the change that I wanted to see in the world. It's what led me to read about Harvey Milk, who you see on the wall here in my mm. office, and Larry Kramer, who you see there, who founded sure. ACT UP and Gay Men's yeah. Health Crisis, and Silence Equals Death, the slogan for ACT UP, which saved so many people. I'm the only openly the, HIV... The, so, the social movements of the AIDS crisis. Yeah, and I'm the only openly HIV positive elected official in the state of New York. And I wow. would not be alive if it wasn't for Larry Kramer and if it wasn't for all of the people. Bayard Rustin, who lived in Chelsea for many years, who was the organizer of the March on Washington for uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, uh, he was thrown in jail because he was gay in the mm. 1950s and 60s. I stand on their shoulders, and that is the path that got me into politics. That's what brought me to New York City. That's why I do this work every single day. It's on the shoulders of these giants who made it possible for me to actually not just run for office, but to be alive. I seroconverted when I was 23 years old. I lost my health insurance a week later. Mm. I was devastated and scared and full of shame, but there were life-saving drugs that had been available for, at that point, eight years. Not that long. No, not and at that, all. And that's why I'm alive today, literally. Mm. And so I am just extraordinarily grateful um, to do this work, and there is so much work to do. There is so much pain and suffering and trauma in the world and not just as speaker of the city council but as a human being as Corey Johnson I see my job every day to try to do as much as I can to make the world a little more compassionate a little more fair a little more nice mm -hmm. a little more kind a little more just and to relieve so much of the suffering that we have I can't do that by myself. Every one of us has a responsibility to do that, whether we're in elected office or not in elected office. Well, Speaker Johnson, Corey, thank you so much. Um, really powerful episode, I think. Um, if folks want to follow you, want to get more involved, how can they? How can they find you? Oh well, you can follow me on. Uh, Twitter, I've been tweeting, I'm losing my mind. I've been <laughs> tweeting the last three days about quitting smoking, which was like my final vice. You know, I'm sober from drugs and alcohol for almost 10 years, but cigarettes are my final thing. And so I'm three days into quitting and I've been tweeting all about it. So if you want to follow my Personal mad journey, <laughs> you can follow me at, uh, at Corey, C-O-R-E-Y, N-I-N-N-Y-C, at Corey in NYC on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, I would love to interact with folks. And uh, you can also go to my website, CoreyForNYC.com. And I'm really grateful that you came today. I love the work that you all are doing Thank and promoting so millennials and the work that's so important. We are hopefully the generation that are going to 
change this country and and uh, ensure that. Yeah, me too. So thank you so much. Thank you. And to our listeners, subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. Uh, check out our website. Follow us on social media at Milan Politics. Um, and check out our Patreon where, where we will have a quick behind the scenes interview with Corey Johnson here coming right up. Thanks. <laughs>